0: Good evening and thanks for joining us. I'm Tracy Noah from the Marion Library Service and welcome to our Library Through the Lens live webinar, part of our series of adult programs delivered differently. This evening, thanks to Alan and Unwin, we welcome Sydney-based Charlotte Wood, the award-winning and acclaimed author of six novels, a collection of interviews, and a book about cooking. She has won the Stella Prize, the Prime Minister's Award, the Indie Book of the Year, and most recently, the ABIA for Literary Fiction. Charlotte is joined in conversation this evening by Elsa Piper, who is the author of Sinning Across Spain and co-author with Tony Doherty of The Attachment. She has also written for theatre and was co-winner of the 2001 Patrick White Playwrights Award for radio and for various journals and magazines, most recently for Griffith Review. In addition, she works as a performer, director, interviewer and teacher. Please feel free at any time during the presentation to type questions you have into the Q&A or chat feeds on your screen, and Charlotte will answer these at the end of her talk. Now, please sit back, grab a cup or glass of wine, and please welcome special guests, Charlotte Wood and Elsa Piper.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks, Tracy. Thank you for having us. Um, Charlotte and I both have the good fortune to live and work on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And we give thanks for that, and we honour their elders, past and present. This luminous collection of essays is subtitled Creativity, Resilience, and the Inner Life. The collection is framed by COVID. It begins during the first lockdown, and of course, it's been published as we're tentatively emerging from the shadows of the virus, hopefully. In the preface, Charlotte, you write that you believe that the joys, fears and profound self-discovery of creativity are the birthright of every person on earth. So let's talk a bit about that. Do you feel that you always had a sense that creativity was a spark or an impulse that was available to you? And if so, do you remember what it first looked or felt like? Oh, that's a good question.
2: I... I have always felt like that. I think it was came from my family. Um, my parents were both very creative people. I mean, it's the word creative and creativity is kind of, you know, I'm sure you feel the same, Alison, that it's it can be a bit, I don't know, a bit sort of, oh, creativity, you know, it's sort of it's a bit, bit like spirituality. Yeah, exactly. It's got so the same thing. Mm-hmm. It sort of lost some edge or something, but. I do think that, I prefer to say making, the making impulse maybe, um, was very, very strong in my family. And my father was one of those people who could make anything, you know, made furniture, made um, building like um, brickworks, made amazing costumes for our school plays, just a very, it made electronic stuff, you know, very, very talented in all those kinds of areas and also made art at times. And my mother was a very um, skilled florist and gardener. So there was a very strong sense in our family as we were growing up that uh, if you wanted something, you made it, you know, we, we would make um, just sort of, there wasn't a lot of, I grew up in a country town. There wasn't, you know, shops and stuff. <laughs> um, so, um. Yeah, there wasn't a place to go to get things from. We had to come up with them ourselves.
1: And you write at one point in the book very beautifully, actually, of, being, you know, of all of you being left in a pram at different times under a tree or under the sky. And I, I don't know for you what that implies, but for me it felt like the sense of dreaminess that you write about in other places in the book was kind of birthed there. It's not necessarily a memory, is it? But what do you think of that as? It's like a received memory. Well, we
2: um, grew up. You know, my my mother put us in um, a pram under the um, trees, as you said, when we were, when we were very small babies. We were left to just look at the trees, and um, we we sort of. I think we, we were almost born staring up at nature and it was very tranquil and beautiful way to, to have a childhood. We were outside the whole time. We were um, just spent a lot of time roaming around in a very free sort of way. It was beautiful.
1: Mm. because it feels to me often when I read through the essays that there's a kind of a thread which is memory and dream and sort of wildness. But do you think that that's something to do also with ageing, which you write about in the book, that, that coming through seven or eight books and also coming to a point in life where you start to look back, that, that those threads become more important or more potent in the work?
2: Yeah, I think um, the you know the, the idea of nature became it's has always been very important to me. It's really um, central. You know, there's a chapter in the book called "The Rapture," which is about um, you know the natural world and its influence. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I've become more trusting of the the sort of um, unconscious impulse or letting that impulse um out so mm-hmm. sorry i haven't
1: answered your question properly I? no that's all right um let's stick with nature for a minute because it, the you know it, the very first essay is called fertile fertile ground and you start by describing this weedy neglected garden um but it's in a city so it's kind of urban nature but it's like the garden becomes this metaphor for you at the beginning of covid And you talk about it as being in need of repair. It's the third weekend of the first COVID lockdown. And you pull on your work boots and you get out your tools and you start to dig. And that whole essay is sort of a reflection on the idea of an inner life. But underpinning it, I feel when I read it, is this sense of work and the connectedness between movement and thinking. Um, I just wonder... You know, for you, is that what gardening's always like? I mean, because I used to be a gardener and I'm not anymore. But I know that for you, it's very rich. And I also know from your Instagram feed that you have a penchant for gardening Australia.
2: I do. I love gardening. Jerry. Well, <laughs> well Jerry's um, Jerry is is an amazing gardener. He lives in North Queensland, which is not very applicable to my garden here in Sydney, but. Um, I love gardening as a place to take that creative energy and um and play around with things in a very unpressured way it's like cooking I feel the same way about it it's it's certainly an expression of creativity but it's not doesn't have because it's not a professionalized world for me it has there's nothing riding on it um but I love I do feel that Gardening is very similar, kind of um, psychically, to writing a book in that there's this sort of um, landscape that you have to populate with with things that either grow or, or die, or you know, there's a balance required. There's a sense of order. There's a sense of boundaries required around it. Um, there, I think I say in the in that first chapter that. Um, a good garden requires things to be kept out of it and things to be allowed into it. And I feel that very strongly about my sense of creativity, that there is, um, you know, there are things that nurture it. A garden has to be fed with food, not just water, um, and light and air and breeze. And, you know, there's all these things that you do to kind of cultivate the ground to let let stuff grow and let surprising things come up. So that's... um one of the um, big parallels I think Um, but Gardening Australia I really do love (laughs) because a lot of the time um, and all my friends laugh at me about it not all of my friends but quite a lot of laugh about my obsession with Gardening Australia but I love that every episode there is some a profile of a couple of people doing their own weird little thing somewhere you know it might be the the begonia breeder who's you know some old guy who's got this huge tract of land filled with begonias that there's no profit involved there's no um you know capitalist impulse it's just kind of pure obsession so it's um it's it's also entirely positive that show i think it's entirely constructive it's all about building and making a a better place and it's a beautiful antidote to a lot of, you know, what we get, the onslaught of Mm -hmm. the current world.
1: It's interesting what you said about, um, you know, the people doing their own thing and the begonias or whatever, but um, it reminded me then when you said that of something in the book about Rosalie Gascoigne, I think it was, um, or is it Anne Thompson, you'll be able to tell me, one of the painters that you talk about who says, well, I don't worry about being a woman or Mm -hmm. I just paint, you know, I'm not a woman artist, or I'm just an artist making work. And that sense of being just a gardener, I don't, I don't mean the just in a small way, but I mean singularly a gardener or just a writer, just a maker, feels to me like that's a very important thing somehow to drop the other labels.
2: Yeah, well, that was Anne Thompson and her painting is one of her paintings oh. behind me. The abstract behind me is one of Anne's paintings. Um, she's an amazing Sydney painter. She's now in her mid-80s I think and she just doesn't brook any um, suggestion that she's not up to things you know and she never has since she was a young woman you know she's a contemporary of John Olson and those people and and she said it only occurred to her after a while that um, her male contemporaries were sort of getting more attention this is in the you know the 50s and 60s and then she thought it, that was a shame because it made me think of myself as a woman and I hated that so then i thought no i'm not a woman i'm an artist and she just sort of divested herself of any stuff about gender even though you know she was subject to all the you know sexism of the time but it didn't she didn't pay any attention to it you know her, her pure artistry as you said just a, like purely a painter uh is the thing that drove her and i love that kind of um singularity of and focus and just um, sort of, not even ambition, but just sort of shutting out all the buzz, extraneous noise that's just going to distract her from her work.
1: I love that. The interesting thing is that because with, a, I mean, with an artist, they have the exhibition and it's a quite compressed amount of time that their work is in the public sphere and they have to present and show up for stuff. But for a writer, when a book comes out, I mean, it's been a long gestation, but there's also this kind of extended talking about it and it can come back at you for quite a long time to talk about the ideas. I'm interested in in this. You talk in this book, you talk quite a lot about natural way of things and how it it's fed you before, during and after. How much of that conversation have you been able to, put aside because so much of it was about gender Um, and do you need to put it aside I mean the political I suppose I I mean you know how much of the political can you put aside when you've written a book like that and do you want to
2: well when you're talking about that book you, you know you can't and you don't want to but you don't when you're an artist you don't want discussion of your work to be only about know the theme Um, so what i came to realize was in the writing of that book it wasn't just the politics so for people who don't know anything about the book it's a it's a book about misogyny basically and it's usually referred to as a feminist dystopia Um, but it the thing that drove drove the the writing of it for me was finding all these other things to bring into that um you know, it was a it was a kind of primitive cry of rage, basically that book. But what enabled me to write it was not the politics; it was the art. What I hope is the artistry, so the the imagery and the symbolism and the um, the beauty, frankly, of of the landscape and also the imaginative leaps that I that I was able to make eventually in the book to to turn it into something slightly surreal, slightly magical. Um, you know, I have a woman basically turning into a rabbit, you know, I've got animals all through it. There's, there's the sort of beauty of the landscape. So there's a whole lot of, um, you know, in, in, the, in um, the luminous solution, I, I, I think fairly frequently quote the American painter Jasper Johns. And he says, art happens when you take an object and you do something to it and you do something else to it. And to me, it's the something else that you bring in that actually makes it into art, not just, you know, um, reportage or, um, or illustration, I suppose. Mm.
1: Because there's a, there's a thing that I suppose with the last two books, that book and The weekend, which is, oh, if you have to say something's about something, it's kind of about older people, older women, Um, And I heard people saying at the time, commentators saying, you know, that you're a zeitgeisty writer, that you've sort of tuned into the zeitgeist. And reading The Luminous Solution, I thought, hmm, that's really interesting because it's almost like you're uh, bent towards dreaminess and the subconscious. It's your own, but it's also almost preempting what came. Do you feel like the dreamy stuff and the unconscious stuff, that you're more trusting of that now? Like, do you feel like if you go back six books, let's say, would you have allowed the wild kind of dystopian stuff, if you want, of the natural way of things, or has that changed?
2: Well, it has changed, but interestingly, it was there in my first book, and which was a very strange, weird book that um, I don't think would be published now. <laughs> But I wrote it in a a state of complete ignorance and sort of innocence, I suppose, which is how everyone writes their first book, maybe. Um, Not thinking really, I wanted to finish a book. That was my only ambition. And it was very weird. And it had a lot of kind of quite um, surreal sort of things in it. Um, And then that was published and, you know, it got some good reviews and things, but it pretty much sank like stone. which was fine, and then, but after that, I think I, I became very self-conscious and quite um, ashamed of that weird <laughs> impulse that had led me to write that book. So then I spent the next several books, you know, working, actually developing my craft, which was really important, learning how to tell a story and what a plot was and all that sort of stuff, um, but being very naturalistic and very, you um, you know, contemporary, I suppose, to more or less degree, um, and not playing around with with time or sort of strangeness. And so, that, I mean, in a way, that's why the luminous solution has, you know, a few a few things about the natural way of things in it. Because that book taught me something, which was mm. about listening to what the book is trying to tell you. It's listening to the book that will show you how to write it if you pay attention to those. Mm much less conscious, um, you know, images and impulses and, um, you know, the kind of strange things from the unconscious. And in a way, it just took me back to my first novel, I felt. Um, but, But what I wanted to do after that was then not write a book like that again. But to bring with me those elements that I had discovered that I could use, it sort of integrated the different parts of the way that I'd been writing over the previous, you know, 4 novels or whatever they were. So it's almost like I I had to divest myself of that strange unconscious stuff to learn how to write a book and then, then bring it back and integrate it into my whole um artistic self. And I feel that I, I, I was able to do that. And I want to continue trying to do that in different ways.
1: It seems to me that that's like so much of what you write about in The Luminous Solution, which is this process that is it's not just about writing. It's kind of about living that for all of us, we start out with instinctive things and then we feel we have to shape ourselves to the world, you know, to other people's expectations or whatever. And there's something about whether it's experience or whether it's, you know, getting a few things right and getting a few things wrong or whether it's to do with seeing other people, that we come back to a sense of agency of what's inside us, what you would call, you know, the, the inner life, I suppose, that the going back to that. I'd like to talk a bit about the essay that's called The Getting of Wisdom. Um, so you're about, you know, you're moving now into writing your ninth book. And in that essay, you open it, or there are two questions that sort of fuel that essay. One of them is, when will I stop feeling like a beginner? And the other one is, must I always, always know nothing? Um, so in light of those two questions, how's, how has your process changed now when you come towards your ninth book? Do you go to it thinking, oh, well, I'm just a beginner, or are you conscious that you do maybe know something?
2: Well, I go into it thinking I know something and then I discover almost immediately that I know nothing. <laughs> that I, I mean, it's a, hard, it's a hard way to be and I'm sure I know that you have felt this and I know that many other writers and artists feel the same way that, um, that you have to discover how to write this book. And this book is completely different from, even if, it, even if it turns out to be similar to the other books, the process of your writing it is completely different. And I remember after I'd written my first book, with all the mighty arrogance of, um, you know, someone <laughs> who's done something once and thinks they know how to do it, I went to a reading of some people who were in the middle of their second book. And, um, and they did these readings and I thought, oh, my God, you know, jeez, I think you know they're not really quite up to it, which is surprising to me because they've written these great books. Um, and they were, like, works in progress, which is incredibly gutsy. I would never have done them. And I went away thinking, oh well, I felt buoyed with confidence, thinking, oh well, if that's what they're doing to their second book, it's going to be a breeze for me. So you know, then I sat down at the desk and began to write my second book, and I was just had this onslaught of of um, horror, just going oh, my God, and then I realised those people were brilliant, you know, <laughs> that I'd just been thinking, um, They were, you know, what, it, what they were doing was a thousand times better than what I was bringing to the page. And basically that state has never left. Every time I come to a new work, it's just a state of unknowing. And, and that, but what I recognise now is that that is normal. Um, and I think the further I go on in a writing life, the more I know that this is what happens. This is part of the process. It's, I still hate it. I hate not knowing. Um, but, you know, it's what Philip Roth calls looking for trouble. You know, mm-hmm. if it's not resisting you at the beginning, then there's something wrong. For me, if it was, if it was and what he says, that fluency is a, is a sign that things aren't good. Whereas I think he says being in the dark from moment to moment is what convinces me to go on. So, I, I trust that that feeling means I'm in the right place. It doesn't mean that it's any more comfortable than you know it ever has been, and I, I never enjoy it. But I see that it's 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 the way it is, and it's the way it kind of has to be.
1: Mm. You mentioned in there them reading work in progress, um, and I'm kind of you write about this. I think very um, generously in the book about you know, what it is to show work in progress. But would you talk a little bit, because you've interviewed as well as writers, you've interviewed a lot of visual artists and there's a comment from Jude Ray that you, the artist, and perhaps Tracy, if you're there, you could just flick up that picture of Jude Ray's. And Charlotte, could you talk about her thing of showing the work? Because I know that's been very important for you.
2: Yes. um, Hopefully we'll get to see one of Jude Ray's um, still
1: life pictures. Mm. Uh, here it comes. There it comes. Oh, isn't it beautiful?
2: Beautiful picture. So Jude Ray is a painter, obviously, and she she she's well known for these still life, which combine these sort of, um, you know, industrial objects like the gas bottle and whatever with the sort of more traditional still life objects like, you know, a beautiful vase or a plant or whatever. Um, and I wanted to talk to Jude for my podcast because I, I felt, felt that I and I feel that I sort of am writing a book that might be equivalent to a still life. And what I admired about her still life is that they're so full of energy. You know, they're not these sort of static, dull um, pictures. They have all this energy and movement within within what appears at first glance to be quite static. Anyway, so I talked to her about her whole process of, of writing, of um, making art and she sort of just said it in passing that one thing that's important to her is that somebody sees the work while she's making it and i found this really staggering you know writers are always so kind of um secretive about their work and actually a friend of mine said the other day she was talking about her work and she said i normally never talk about this so much i'm normally like gollum you know my precious my precious don't let anybody know anything about it because it's so, you know, I don't know what, valuable. But anyway, Jude said that the, the fascinating thing was that she said it wasn't um, so much, it wasn't that the person seeing it had to know anything about art, had to say anything to her. It could be, you know, the guy who came to fix the phone or, um, you know, uh, just a random passerby. It was the fact that their eyes on it Made her see it differently, and it, it made her have a slight um, removal from the work. I think she said it. It's a useful alienation mm. Mm. that I, I. I was kind of at first really astonished by that that willingness to to have other people see an unfinished work, but then I realised quite quickly that there was a parallel in the writing world where if I sent my unfinished work to somebody else to read you know you or another writer friend often at the moment of sending it um some solution to a previously really intractable problem would suddenly come to me and it was i think it's just that that process of detaching yourself and thinking okay i give up i surrender i can't fix this problem whatever it is So, I'm going to hand it over to you to see if you can make something of it. And in that handing over, something happens in your, you know, unconscious mind that there's a sort of releasing of the grip that allows, um, you know, I guess it's like trying too hard with anything, you know, if you Mm. sort of. um,
1: I always think that um, it's a bit, maybe it's a bit like. That you see it through their eyes or as you imagine their eyes are seeing it and so it lets you have another perspective or something like that but I well that's exactly what Jude was saying that she yeah. it
2: through a stranger's eyes um, yeah. and i I think I read somewhere years ago I can't remember who said it but that uh, if you want someone to be enchanted with your work you have to become disenchanted with it yourself mm-hmm. in order to enchant somebody else. Um, and, you know, you must know this in, in the acting world, that if you, I know we've talked about this, if, if you're carrying or exhibiting too much emotion or something, you stop the viewer from having
1: yeah. emotion. Yeah, yeah. No, it's. I, I think that's a very true thing. And on the page, I guess that's the battle too, that if you do all the work for the reader, you don't leave them to take anything for themselves. But um, I'm just interested, you know, in, in that thing of um, what, a lot of what we're talking about is kind of slightly oogly-woogly. You know, you send it and somehow you see it. And you do address that, those sorts of things quite a lot in The Luminous Solution. Um, there's an essay called Unconscious Bias, and that's largely about dreams. Um, and you have this idea of this, I think you call it an underground river. Which is from the weekend, actually. It's a quote from the weekend an underground river of rich, vibrant meaning flowing beneath the days. And I, I love that. Now, I don't remember dreams, and you very generously start this essay by saying, I'm not going to tell you my dream. Um, but you are absolutely convinced of their importance, aren't there? Could you just talk about them a bit? Yeah, I wanted to write about this because
2: it's something that is one of those sort of rules that you get told as a, as a learning writer that you must never have a dream in a book because they're boring and whatever. And, you know, of course they are. And yet I feel like as someone with a very vivid dream life, to not put some, some recognition that dreams exist in a book seems to me to be missing a huge swathe of, of human life you know even if you don't remember dreams um, and I mostly don't remember my dreams but I wake up with a feeling from a dream that might be just there for a, you know half a second or something um, but I do I do often remember my dreams and they're very kind of you know I'll wake up in the morning and say to my husband who you, um, that I say do you want to hear about my dream <laughs> he's like I know, really uh, I go, well so I was on the moon, and um, <laughs> so it kind of I have these very weird, elaborate sort of dreams, but I also have very prosaic dreams. Um, but I just, I just, I, I guess wanted. First of all, I I get so provoked by people telling me, all of us, that you you must never do this in a book. That I immediately want to do it because I think it's a, just a terribly anti-art position to say there are these rules you have to do this you have to do this and you can't do that and I think well you know screw that because <laughs> you know the great artists have always put two fingers up to whatever rules they're told about so that's sort of an aside but I also think you know dreams can be so potent they can carry these really kind of amazing images. Um, I've just finished reading Helen Garner's new diary, oh. third volume of her diaries, and I love that she she has always put dreams in her books, um, you know, just little snippets of dreams, of images from dreams that are so strong and powerful that, um, you know, I love I love to read them. And I often remember other people's dreams if they tell me a dream. I'll remember it for years if it's a really good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I just think to say no dreams allowed is kind of silly. And um and I, you know, I think that acknowledging a dream life shows us that we don't know everything. You know.
1: I felt very jealous reading that chapter actually, because because of not remembering them. But I loved something you wrote in there that where you said that a therapist um said that that you that you read somewhere said that dreams arise from a wanting system that their function is to allow the dreamer to safely and um you know comfortable if not comfortably but safely act out um potentially dangerous or crazy impulses i wondered about that do you reckon that that's what the work of the novelist is for the wider culture that in a way the novelist is is i don't mean that the that you're the dreamer but that that it's acting out that stuff for a culture that's, oh, that's trying nice. to hold itself together.
2: That's a really fascinating point. Yeah, there was a, I think it was a neuropsychologist who said that about the wanting system, and I just fell in love with that phrase. Um, yeah, I think maybe you're right. Maybe we, we are sort of playing out different possibilities than we have in our real lives, right? Mm. Or we're maybe re- refracting our real lives through some sort of prism and showing us the same thing in a different light, or playing around with them and upending them. And um, you know, I think well, maybe that's what art is for. Yeah,
1: to, yeah,
2: is to and you know, I feel like art is there to take us to another realm, another plane of existence than kind of brute reality, and we need art. Because of that, we need to have other, um, other not other worlds to go to. I don't mean in, in an escapist sense because I hate the idea that literature is just an escape from the world because I think it is absolutely centrally part of the world mm-hmm. and that I kind of live through reading. Um, reading is a part of how I understand the world. It's not like, oh, there's the world, I'm going to go over here and get away from it. you know it's absolutely central. And yet there is, I think, it just allows you to live on, on many more levels than just the present physical,
1: you know, world of facts. And, was- and in a way that is like a dream, I imagine. I mean, on a few occasions when I do remember them, it's like a shock that you are capable of this. And that to me is what a novelist can do. It's, it's like because you invest in a character, it's like you... No, you are capable of it. I mean, I, you know, I've want to. i always wanted to be Jude in the weekend. I want to be her. And I know I probably never will, but there's something nice. so pleasing. No, there's something so pleasing about that moment of thinking, but I could somehow in this other. So, yes, it does seem to me that. Now, enough about my wishes. Um, I thought we should maybe, I would like very much for you to read a little bit just um, so that people get to hear a bit of the made work. What about the end of that dream chapter? Page yes. 53. Um, so, this is just the end of that really beautiful chapter called Unconscious Bias.
2: Yes, and I do want to say to people it, it doesn't have long descriptions of my dreams in it. So no. Very <laughs> but it was also talking about sleep, actually. That chapter is about sleep and how artists often want to um, stay in that liminal zone between sleeping and waking because that's where your unconscious is quite active it seems you're, you're 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 less defended from what your unconscious is telling you so people like Joan Didion and others talk about sleeping in a room with their book at a certain point where they need to be have their have their unconscious sort of will just be in that in between state but anyway, this is the end of that chapter in or outside of books dreams remind us that no matter how much we pretend otherwise we're not in full command of our lives They remind us that cause and effect are not the solid truths we perceive them to be, that mess and unruliness are always present outside or beneath what's visible. A remembered dream is a message from the unconscious to say that however much we try, we never really know ourselves at all. The work of artists is to welcome this unknowing, to allow that the spaces between things between, say, a dream and a fairy tale placed side by side, contain mystery and significance, not just emptiness. The poet Anne Sexton said of writing, to be a fool, that perhaps requires the greatest courage. My dream life shows me every morning that I am a fool and that a good life in this world requires the courage and the grace to know it. Making art is an attempt to bring into cohesion the fragmented, lost parts of ourselves and our world. And the dream's mad symbols, its bright letterbox, its tiny silver ball, its shapeless dark, remind me that while any such attempt is surely doomed, it's still a beautiful thing to try. Mm. Thank
1: you. It's the same for gardening, isn't it? Still a beautiful thing to try to make something flower. Time. Mm. Um, I would like to have a look now at um, or think about that the essay that's called the outside voice, and you subtitle it in praise of unruly artists. And um, just because we thought we might have a look at some of the artists that you reference who've somehow influenced your work. I love that you opened that essay by saying that a a fellow writer once said to you approvingly that you had gone feral. Um, And you write in that essay that a rowdy animal spirit is at work in all the work of all of these visual artists, you know, the down and dirty natural world. So I just thought, would you pick one of their images and kind of just if you could talk a little about where the intersection is for you between what you've learned about their work and what your work is? Mm
2: um well let's look at the uh carla dickens um
1: piece please tracy tracy if you're there tracy maybe you could leave it up for a minute too we'll yeah. go, until charlotte's sort of spoken so, about it a bit
2: and that oh is, there it is wow yeah. carla dickens is um an indigenous artist from the north of new south wales And this is one of a series of of works that she made called Warrior Women. So that's cast aluminium underpants with all this kind of stuff hooked on them and through them. I think that's some kind of horse's bridle or something and animal, you know, um, hair and leather straps and stones and things. And there's a whole series and some of those have barbed wire and I have a very beautiful one which has um, emu feathers and... um, ribbons and things um, so Carla's work um, and I, we might move on to the Lindy Iwami ones the strange yes these strange um figures that those those costumes are made from uh, what is called animal viscera <laughs> so these things are made from like stomach linings and you know, as you can see horns and um, claws and things um, and they're kind of this weird mix of kind of whimsical and very creepy, um, and I would say that probably about Carla's work as well. Um, so I mean, I guess the kind of um, feral thing is very evident in in those two picture um, works. But when I when I talk about feralness, especially in women artists, I'm I'm more talking about the spirit that brings this stuff into being. It's not just the content of of the work itself, and actually, if we just go back to the the speaker view, the pictures behind me on the wall here in our house, um, there this one, as I said, is um, Anne Thompson, and the other one is a painter called Lucy Culleton, um, who often paints animals, and her her work isn't as um, sort of wild; it's more perhaps more traditional and disciplined than some others, but. Her spirit as an artist, I think, is pretty wild and feral um, because she does not... It's that thing we were talking about earlier with Anne Thompson, the kind of not swerving from almost a a real gut instinct to just make the work you want to make, come what may. Um, And I think for women artists especially to to not be, think about being nice and being pleasing and being attractive and being um, welcoming or, um, you know, sort of um, helpful. Uh, And that's what I find very inspiring, especially, you know, when I was writing The Natural Way of Things, I was quite frightened at what was coming out of my mind, frankly. You know, the, um, the darkness of it and the kind of, violence of it and it took me a long time to to accept that this is just the book this has to be if you're writing about misogyny it's not going to be nice it's not pretty Mm. and you can't make it acceptable just because you want to be acceptable Um,
1: i remember being um i was i was actually up at varuna at the same time as you were working on that at one point and you had not long since discovered the louise bourgeois images And the combination of fear and thrill that you spoke about at that time, I've never forgotten because it was like you lit up, and that's very much in this in the way that you talk about some of those. Have you got the Louise Bourgeois, just one of the Louise Bourgeois images there, Tracy? Um, And maybe you could just speak about how that is for you when you remember it. This was very
2: um, transformative for me coming across the work of Louise Bourgeois. That's Anne Thompson again. There yeah, sh- it is. Yeah, this so is. Very strange, creepy, um, disturbing. And these are very large sort of room size installations. I haven't seen one in the flesh. I've only seen them in pictures. But she um, made these. These are called the cell installations. And they're these cages with... Very creepy things inside them. Sometimes things like this, half human, half, you know, what is that? You know, a turd or intestine or some alien thing. Um, and then there's other ones that have sort of women's clothing hanging in them. are these mm-hmm. these strange forms that um, you know, it's like, is that a face? Is it a body part? Whatever. So I the way that I I became kind of obsessed with Louise Bourgeois was by by deciding that I was going to borrow her persona the persona that i gave her you know i have no idea what her real persona was but i looked at these things and i thought well she wasn't sitting around thinking oh i wonder if these people are going to like this or if it's too weird or you know what does it mean and what are, what kind of person am i for thinking up these weird creepy things hmm. in my mind she just went here i am making and- my work and so i think i'd say in a in
1: a isn't screen it, screen it screen yes it's one of the things you talk about, isn't it? Renting a head, really, in the book you write yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's one of these, there are nine, there's a chapter that covers nine creative ways of thinking, and this one's called impersonation or head renting or um, mm. habiting, where you take the perspective of someone that you don't know, you know, an artist or, you know, could be anyone, could be an astronaut, could be, um, you know, a truck driver, whatever, to go, I'm going to use their persona to write my book so i thought i i thought every time i freaked out about what i was doing i just said no i'm louise bourgeois i'm just making <laughs> uteruses and sticking them in a cage <laughs> i don't have to know what it means that was the kind yeah. of big thing for me was mean mm-hmm. what does it mean and i think i feel visual artists are kind of liberated from this obsession with having to articulate the meaning of things as they're making them which is what mm-hmm. writers tend to do um, and it you know for some writers that's a perfect state for me it's a very I can't I can't do that so I need to just let go and go into the you know the unknowing state and just make mm.
1: and one of the things I really love about the book and what you've written about making is that um I think we might get rid of Louise Bourgeois by the way now <laughs> <laughs> Um, But apropos of that thing of being able to just go, what the hell, what does it matter? It applies just as much to following a recipe. I've never, I'm not a cook. I'm really a terrible cook and I had never made biscuits before. And I made, during lockdown, I made my first ever batch of biscuits and I didn't do it properly, you know, and properly was really worrying me. And then they came out and they were glorious. They were really good. And I thought about that in terms of what you're saying, in terms of what you write in this book, that, you know, actually it doesn't have to be perfect. That maybe you can feel it. Maybe you can run with what you've got in the cupboard. You know, <laughs> no, no, it
2: doesn't. I mean, in cooking, I've often sort of, you know, helped nephews and nieces or people who like. I've, I feel very passionate about telling people that you can cook. You don't have to do it right. Mm-hmm. And almost, you know, with re- with I reckon ninety percent of recipes, if you do something different from the recipe, it's not going to make it wrong. It'll just make it taste a bit different. Or make
1: it yours, yeah. You know, like it
2: might be a bit um, chewy rather than crispy, or they might be, you know, a little sweeter or a bit more burnt or whatever. But it's still good. It's still edible. It's very rare. Mm. Something's just completely inedible. Um, So that thing of, and yet I would still say, still use a recipe. You know, rather than going to the kitchen and go right. I'm going to invent a biscuit if I've never made a biscuit before. Uh, out of you know eggs and um, I don't know chutney, you know that actually <laughs> make a biscuit. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a sense of learning, learning craft,
1: mm, craft, yeah.
2: But yeah, not having to do the perfect thing straight away, and that you get better. Your talent is something you develop. It doesn't just, mm. you know. I think a lot of people get into trouble when they they want to make something and they they start and it's not good. And so, therefore, they go, oh, well, I'm not a creative person. I can't do this. Whereas any artist will tell you it's always not good, <laughs> you know, for the first mm-hmm. 50 iterations, but you get it, you make it better each time. Mm-hmm. And and also you grow your talent. Talent is not a fixed thing. It's not, you're not born with a certain amount of talent or not. You know, you have You have natural talent or you don't. I don't even know what that is really. I do think some people have certain natural um, flares for things. But what, you know, what I feel like I've absolutely depended on in my writing life is that
1: you can grow your
2: talent. um, It's it's actually,
1: yeah, it's one of the very beautiful things about this book is I feel that every so often you let us into something about you that is a change and there's a point, uh, I can't, uh, I think it's in the unconscious bias, but where you, say um, about you know I have this adolescent pleasure in breaking the rules and I loathe being told what's allowed and I, as I was reading it I thought I wonder if that was something you would have written 10 you could have felt that you could articulate even 10 years ago there's a beautiful sense because the essays have come over a long period of time but you've gone back to them and reworked them of evolution of thinking too which I really love in the book now look it's um, time I have to let some of these questions be answered tracy if you're there and you want to throw in a question and then we'll just come back for a reading to finish up but um some questions tracy if you've got them
0: sure so there are a few questions and also some comments as well charlotte so uh julie says do you think the gardening analogy reveals a sense of needing to put things in order or is it more an opportunity to let your imagination go wild and nurture ideas
2: Ah, thank you for that question. I think it's both. I think, um, well, because a garden is a natural space, I feel that you can't really control You can't make it too ordered. I mean, lots of gardens are, obviously. You know, some very beautiful gardens are extremely manicured and whatever, Um, but to me that's kind of... You may as well have a lounge room, you know, if you're going to be, be controlling nature to that degree. So to me, the ideal garden is that that thing where it does have structure and it does have um, design and boundaries and it is fed and nurtured and all of that, but it's also shaped and um, and then it's then it's it's Things pop up where you don't expect them or you might think your plan doesn't always work out right so you put you know the rosemary there it's perfect and then it dies because not the you know the microclimate isn't quite right but some other thing pops up there and you think oh actually but just sort of get rid of that half dead rosemary and let that thing flourish um you know a garden has its own uh nature you know that will that will come up if you let it and you have to pay attention to the the climate that you have and the place that you have and the light and, and the rainfall and all of that so um, i think it's definitely a mix of of control and and letting go of control and the letting go is as important as the control i think because you know a friend of mine said recently oh, i'm going to spend a vegetable garden and i was like great knowing that their garden has no direct sun. And I was like, so where are you going to do that? <laughs> he said, we're in our garden. I'm like, yeah, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, I don't know how it's gone. He said, oh, but I don't worry about that. I was like, yeah, but you don't get to decide whether, whether things need sun. They need sun. You know? So you, you are directed by, again, it tells you how to make it you know a garden will tell you how to make it if you you can keep putting plants in that die and i've done that for years and years until you finally accept that okay this garden that bit of the garden needs this kind of plant otherwise they're not going to thrive so um i do think the whole of the creative impulse for me is is really about that tension between um and there's a there's actually a chapter called cat cat and baby in there um which is about the the Impulse for discipline and order and uh, routine, and learning, um, you know, skills and craft and sort of, you know, getting the shears out basically. And the other impulse that's equally important, which is the letting go, the allowing the work to come to you, the the unruliness, um, which to me is is where the art really is. But it's the art can only be expressed to somebody else with the other
0: skills brought into it. Great. Um, Terry says, thank you for this book, which inspires me to stop procrastinating from being creative. Our society makes us feel that we should be doing productive things or worthwhile pursuits like exercise, cooking, working, caring for family, and feels guilty to just take time out to be creative. I always, sorry, I'm scrolling up the wrong way here. I always feel that I have to give myself permission to do nothing, or to spend time being creative, taking photos and drawing, et cetera?
2: Yeah, well, go you. Like we, we are in a culture that is sort of obsessed with productivity and, and also with um, with perfection and the finished object. Um, and I quote a study in the book somewhere that, uh, that um, and there's lots of studies apparently that show this, that people say they want creativity say, in the workplace or in, you know, um, institutions or organisations of every kind, So we we want creative ideas. But as soon as we see creative ideas, we reject them because we actually don't recognise that they have value. And that's because they're new and we haven't seen them before. And so the new is unknown and it's therefore a threat. And we haven't seen that this great idea that you've got for, I don't know, running a fate or something, well, no one's done that before. So, um, what we want as an organization is, is for you to replicate somebody else's create, creative idea. So, you know, all, all creative ideas are really up against it because our, our kind of human impulse is to reject what we don't know because it's a threat. So, I think you're quite right that the idea of us sitting around, you know, staring out the window is not um, very welcome in our society and yet all the greatest breakthroughs and inventions and art come from that very thing the kind of idling noodling um dreaming daydreaming self coupled with the discipline and the tenacity and the perseverance and the and the sheer bloody mindedness and dedication to it so i think for people, yeah, you know, as you have said, procrastination. I think procrastination is usually fear, and it's often fear of imperfection. So to me, the the starting point for any um, creative practice is to is to treat it as practice. You're just practicing how to do something. You don't have to do it. You don't have to make the finished thing. You're practicing, you know, your brushstroke or or your you know cooking or whatever it is. Um, but the attention to the process and the, the, the being in the moment of making is where the real pleasure comes from. Eventually something will come out of it, maybe, uh, but that's not what you do it for in the end. And I think all artists who have been working for a long time will, will, will say that, that the only thing you can actually control is your dedication to the moment the practice of making you can't control anything about what what happens once you finish it um, so you know and just start that's there's there's just there's no way around developing a creative practice other than starting and failing and knowing that you're going to fail for the first I don't know, 10 years more but failing you know whatever whatever that means But procrastinating, you know, I do think there's so many people who think, oh, when I get time, I'll do it. When I have enough confidence, I'll do it. When I get enough money, I'll do it. When, 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 those things never happen. They never, ever happen. Because once you get enough money, then there'll be some other thing to stop you. So the only way to bring creativity into your life is just to make a decision first. And, and and then arrange your life around that decision. So you need to give up certain things, you know, to get the time, to get the money, to whatever. Um, most things you don't need money for. You just need time and and commitment.
1: And I'm just, I'm just going to add something to that, Charlotte. You know, one of the loveliest things about having spent a lot of time working in the theatre is in that space we talk about it as making a play. And the notion of play mm-hmm. is... You know, play as a kind of a professional aim is one of the, it's one of the best things. You know, we we forget about that that actually that's the other aspect to bring to it. And if play looks like walking or procrastinating, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I do think that word's really useful as a professional word. You know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
1: Sorry, um, Tracy, with more that, questions. With the materials. That's mm. what mm.
0: making stuff is. Mm. So Isabel uh, says, as writers, what is your relationship between writing and social media, especially Instagram? Do you see it as a creative tool, a way to connect with people, a distraction, a necessary evil, or somewhere in between? And she also says, P.S. I was recently on Gardening Australia. Jane, Ed, is my pal. And she can uh, you can have her autograph later if you like.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> superstar. Um yeah, Instagram, all of the above, pretty much. You know, I, I think all social media is a real danger for any um, anyone who, who wants to make stuff, I mean, you know, to a more or less degree, but certainly writing a book requires immense privacy for a certain long period of time. And I used to be on Twitter for nine years, and I got out of that, thank God, because that started to really colonise my... Um, my thoughts, my impulses. I'd think of some, you know, I'd I'd be writing a sentence and into my mind would come, oh, the 30 people on Twitter who would think, well, that's stupid and that's boring and that's, you know, incorrect and that's, um, you know, derivative and this terrible little chorus of judgment, um, which is all obviously coming from within me, but I, I started to second guess everything I was saying because I knew how people would respond on Twitter to this, you know, fragment of a sentence that wasn't even finished, which is a ridiculous thing to focus on. So I deleted my Twitter account. Um, I'm sort of hardly on Facebook. I do have an Instagram account. I have a private one for my friends and my family, and then an, an author page where you know I put stuff about events and whatever. And I try to put other things as well. And I, I kind of I do love Instagram. I feel like it's a scrapbook sort of um, and I like to I like to know what my friends are doing you know with their days I like to see what they're having for dinner I like to see you know where they walk their dog or whatever but uh, once it becomes a kind of all-consuming tool of promotion it actually gets extremely boring for everybody and you have to just watch yourself and also again the second guessing thing of if 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 my work was, say, as a visual artist, I think Instagram's fantastic for visual artists in lots of ways, but also I think it could be, you know, a little, it, very much a double-edged sword um, because of that second-guessing thing. And I think putting work in progress on Instagram is probably, unless you're very confident and very um Um, kind of senior in your practice i know jude ray puts works in progress which i i love seeing and i think she is sort of um you know she has enough authority in herself to not be um to influenced in a malign way by that but i think for for a beginner it's like you're seeking approval all the time before you've even finished your thing um, and writers used to do it on blogs, you know, to put up a half-finished story, what do you think? And it's like, that's a bad idea. So I think social media, you know, it all depends on how you use it, but it can, you know, I think most writers I know, actually most of the writers I know have never been on any social media, but then I have, you know, lots of my other writer friends are, and they've always, I mean, I also you'll probably
1: agree with this, have a very kind of love-hate relationship with it, really. I was just going to say apropos of Instagram because I have always loved Instagram. Um, I'm not an early uptaker. Charlotte's a very good technical sort of, you know, person, but I'm not particularly, never got Facebook, certainly never got Twitter, but I loved Instagram from very early on. Instagram taught me how to see and it was never more clear to me than, um, really, it taught me how to look. It was never more clear to me than during lockdown this time. For 107 days, I just went out for the afternoon walk and I would photograph the sky, just the sky, you know, around sunset. And I feel like that it turned into a project. It didn't start as one, but I feel like that I was able to see that I had grown as an observer of the world through my experience with Instagram over, I think it's, I think I joined in 2011. It's 10 years now. I mean, I've never joined anything early, but I don't know why I got it. But the other thing I would say is when my husband died, um, Charlotte asked me if I would do one thing, which was to post one image on Instagram each day. Didn't have to comment or anything, just so that she would know I was there and I was okay. And I think there are odd little things like that. that was were...
2: of you, right? No,
1: no, no, it wasn't a... of a... Oh, God, it's that wouldn't have made a you feel okay. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I I there were sort of beautiful things like that that they can offer, don't you think?
2: Yeah, and they can communicate. But that's a that's almost a... That's an off. I mean, it was public because you're a public. Mm. It wasn't, you know, that was an agreement that we had. Yes,
1: that we had. That's right. And
2: it's like, I just know that you are okay yeah. enough to do that. And then, mm. yeah, you know, and I think it's a very great tool of connection through lockdown. It was really important to see yeah. those pictures of yours every day for me you know people putting photos of their 5k you know um i know in south australia you probably have no concept of what this was <laughs> so um you know it was a very tough time for lots of us so at that point instagram was a beautiful tool of connection and so yeah. i guess it just depends on your impulses what you're wanting from putting this stuff there but mm-hmm. the long 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 answer to that question
1: mm-hmm fraught question now i'm aware of timing tracy we're we're sort of at the end of the time have you got how are we going with questions do you want one more or
0: did you want no? one more there are a couple more but um i can read one more out for you if you like let's have
1: one more and then maybe if charlotte will we'll just do a very short reading to finish up
0: what Sounds do you think? great okay so mm. rachel says my mother was an assemblage artist who resisted exhibiting she thought that the work changed once it was under the gaze of the audience. Mm -hmm. I have felt the shift of what I've designed at every first preview in my theatre lighting design work. What do you think about this? Does the outside gaze affect the very nature of the work or do you imagine it remains wholly intact as created?
2: Wow. I think it does change. I think, I mean, in a way, that's why... I put a book into the world to see what how it changes once it's in the world. Um, and I, you know, there's a somewhere in the luminous solution, I can't remember where, I talk about the question of if I if I knew a book would never be read, would I still write it? And I think for me, I probably wouldn't, because for me, the reader is the other half of the creation. And that sounds very, you know, I don't know. Motherhoody, I suppose, but quite often, I'm sure lots of writers will say this, a reader will tell you what you've done. A reader will say, oh, this book to me means blah. And you're like, oh my God. I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. You know, so it readers can show you whole layers of meaning that you didn't know were there, um, that you didn't intend to be there, but they are there. Um, so I, I think it does change. And sometimes in a way that you, you know, you don't like. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not, you know, justifiable. Um, but yeah, that was amazing. Um, I was thing about exhibiting changing. I mean, I suppose it depends on how much you want your relationship with it to be the primary one it's an interesting i feel like once once a book is published and i say this all the time to to newer writers once it's published it's kind of none of your business anymore you can't control it you can't decide how people are going to read it whether they're reading it wrong Um, you can't decide that their interpretation of it is you know mean or whatever it's not yours anymore it's theirs And then to me, that's the point of going, right, go and write another book, because then it's yours while you're doing it. But once you've finished it, it's not yours anymore.
1: Hmm. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Um, We're just going to finish up because I actually think people deserve to hear this last little bit. This is from The Rapture, which is the last essay in the piece, and it feels to me like everything brings us to this point. And I basically asked Charlotte to read it because I don't know. It feels like what we might all need at the moment as we um, are emerging from lockdown and dealing with climate change or whatever. Um, The rapture is about nature and the the greatness and the vastness of the world and our sort of perfect insignificance and about a million other things. But I just think this is a glorious gift. So, Charlotte, would you read it?
2: Thank you, Ailsa. yeah, this is about being, um, discovering that I could love the ocean after sort of always being an inland girl who was kind of afraid of the ocean. And it's also about, as I also said, about the kind of the creative impulse, um, the artist and nature, I suppose. And this is the end of it. One recent summer morning, as I walked home alone from a swim, a thought arrived like clear, cold water. This is the happiest moment of my life. It had been a rough year in many ways. The future was uncertain. Nevertheless, I was happy. I loved my partner and all our close people were healthy. It was to do with my work too. I'd finished a book, felt I'd given it my all. And I had the sense of completion and quiet pride that comes at such a time. But more than all that, it was to do with the sea with taking the sound of the ocean into sleep. The great stretch of water with its endless sweep and drag now felt like connectedness. This chill water glazing my body was miraculously joined to every other ocean and sea and bay on the planet. And now the idea of being a tiny speck carried and lifted was restful and consoling. I have found in the ocean some deep release, a rinsed acceptance of how things are. Maybe I've surrendered to the great unconscious, each cold submersion gradually reconciling me to the scattered parts of my hidden self, without strain or resistance. This morning, I stepped into the cold waves beneath a smoky bushfire sky. The breath whooshed out of me, Reminding me that I'm more than just neuroses and thoughts. Here in the sea, I'm at once all body and nobody at all. It's no surprise that baptism involves such immersion. The salt water is a blissful shock of luck and the life force. I'm alive, I'm free,
1: I've exhaled. Thank you so much, Charlotte. Um I think that probably sums up why I literally have bought this book in bulk to give to the people I love. No, really, I mean, I want, every, yeah. I want everyone I love to read this book and you will want everyone you love to read this book. So thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Tracy, for making it possible for us to have the pictures and right. thanks, Charlotte, for talking about the artworks and for making this book. It's a really, really beautiful book for this time in our lives and for all times.
2: Thank you, I um, you know, those of you watching, some of you may or may not know how what a huge task it is to run an interview like this and to set it all up and I'm really grateful to the library to Tracy and especially to Ayosa, So thank
1: you.
0: And for coming. No, thank Thanks, you. Everyone. Yes. Thank you both so much, Charlotte and Alsa, for joining us this evening and for all of your wonderful insights and for sharing the luminous solution with us. Um, it's been such a pleasure to have you join us for Library of the Lens. And I do hope we can welcome you in person next time. I know you were meant to come over and join us in person, but um, thank you for still joining us online this evening. Charlotte's book can be purchased from any good local bookstore or, of course, you can uh, borrow that from your library. And please keep following the Marion Library's Facebook page, the City of Marion website, and check your inbox to be kept up to date on all of the upcoming Library to the Lens presentations and workshops. We do hope you will join us next time. And thanks again, ladies. It's been it's been a wonderful evening. Thanks. Yeah.
1: Thank
0: you. And thank you to all of you for joining us as well. Good night.